Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the podcast. Before we get into it today, please make sure that you follow me on Instagram at Felix.Levine. And also make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel. You can find by searching my name, Felix Levine, there on YouTube. And there you'll find everything in its full video format, as well as smaller clips and highlights from those episodes. Also, if you're listening to this right now, if you don't mind just taking a quick second to go to the Apple podcast app and rating and reviewing the show five stars, that would go a long way. So I appreciate you doing so. I also want to give a big shout out to my sponsor, U.S. Wellness Meats. All of U.S. Wellness Meats' beef, lamb, bison, and dairy products are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished. They also offer pasture-raised heritage pork, free-range poultry, and wild-caught seafood. They specialize in a variety of special diets and have hundreds of paleo, keto, Whole30, sugar-free, and AIP friendly options. U.S. Wellness Meats is over 400 all-natural whole foods in their online store at uswellnessmeats.com. And all of their foods are raised on family farms dedicated to sustainable and ethical principles. They do not use any pesticides, herbicides, antibiotics, growth hormones, or GMOs. U.S. Wellness Meats ships anywhere in the country for only $9.50 for shipping and handling. And most orders are delivered within 24 to 48 hours of leaving their facilities. Use promo code PODCAST and you'll receive 15% off store-wide savings at uswellnessmeats.com. Again, go to uswellnessmeats.com, use that promo code PODCAST, and you'll get 15% off store-wide savings. Go check it out. And my guest today, he is a senior editor at Bro Bible. He has a fantastic podcast called Oops! The Podcast. He's a comedian. He does it all. It's his second time on the show, and I'm super excited to not only see him, but talk to him once again. Please welcome the ever-talented, hilarious Francis Ellis. And we're live, Francis Ellis, part two. Thank you so much for uh, for coming in again because uh, it really does mean the world, and I'm I'm just happy to see you on a on a personal level. It's great to see you, Felix, and I'm glad that you're wearing a turtleneck because that is exactly how I picture you. I think I might have worn a different turtleneck last time. I, I've only ever seen you in turtlenecks. Okay. Well, if we ever go part three, I'll wear something else. No, no, but, uh, no. I would be at this point disappointed okay. if you didn't show up wearing a turtleneck. Do you, what do you think about the if I went with like a white turtleneck next time? That's fine. Dude, I think you're Dude. one of those people who can actually pull it off and, and you're not going to be, you know, seen as a, a dick for it. I if that. I wear a turtleneck, people, people get are mad. People are going to say, really? Yeah, they get mad at me. Hmm. They think I'm trying to, <laughs> to tell them something. I don't even know what it would be, but I don't know either. Yeah. But all right. But, uh, what I like to do, as, as my listeners know, is to ask my guests if there's a tidbit, little story, a little something that the world doesn't know about my guest. This is your second time here, but I'm sure there's still a little something I told you before, and you told me you had a little, yeah, a little I, nugget for I you. have a kind of a fun story, and the only reason that this is top of mind is because I told it at a very small dinner party last night, just six okay. people. Uh, by the way, I find that... <laughs> I find it necessary to quantify right. the gatherings that I go to when I reference them. Yeah. And say it was just this small of a group. <laughs> As if, you know, if I said 
15 or whatever, people would, would shame me. Yeah, I don't know. Is there like a limit, do you think? Well, I think people hearken back to when the 10-person the limit was imposed, and, and there's probably some sort of unspoken uh, memory, at least, that that is the limit for the amount of indoor people that should be at a gathering. I think it's weird that originally, I don't know if you remember, I think it was 25 it, it shifted a bunch. It shifted. At one point, it was fifty, and then it went to I think it went to twenty five, and now no, it's it, and 10. then it was ten. And I think we're back at that place. We're back at ten, even so if people a, haven't said that. So you that had yet. a COVID friendly little gathering of six yeah. under the limit. And it's also it's also um, in my new neighborhood. I just moved to Dumbo, and, and two of my best friends live within fifty yards of me. Oh. So we are we, we are within each other's sphere of wow. friendship meaning we have contact with them on a regular basis that's like our friendship bubble so we see each other all the time but we try not to see other people that much was the move in particular was it in large part because uh, you had those two very close friends honestly nearby? when we found this apartment yeah. it did not occur to us at that point only one of my friends lived okay. as close as he did and it didn't occur to me when we found the apartment, how close it was. Huh. Uh, and then the other couple moved in the day before we moved in. So at the time when we found the apartment, they had not seen theirs yet. So it was, huh. it was very coincidental. And now we've got this insane colony of, of friendship <laughs> on our street. You know it's like I, college, dude. It's amazing. It, <laughs> and that's nice, especially Dumbo. But yeah. I have something for you. Because of the move, I wanted you oh my to, uh, God. to debut your move. What the hell? To debut your move in the in this a little is celebration. So much. This is so kind. This is. Uh, I hope that you you're you're with your girlfriend. You yeah, in. yeah, yeah. Well, She'll love this. I hope she you has guys. A, uh, she has a drinking problem. <laughs> So she'll be thrilled. Beautiful. Yeah, that's well, so kind of you. I appreciate. Well, I appreciate you coming. You know, back on. let me tell you something. I have done. I don't even know how many fucking. Po Can we swear on this? Podcast? Yes, of yeah. course. Uh, podcast in in my life i've been asked on so many and i was saying to felix before i we began that i don't like to come back and do a, someone's podcast again unless it's like andrew schultz's right. pot someone's who's just a, a megastar <laughs> which is very selfish but i immediately agreed to do yours or maybe it took me a bit but no, you did yeah because I think you're in the middle of your move you're busy and because I, you're the real deal man i appreciate that. you prepare you are timely you're professional and uh you ask very informed questions you remind me of the guy who runs the hot ones show sean something you know the hot ones hot wings like tasting oh yeah show? yeah yeah um i can't remember sean. what's his name what is it sean edmonds evans sean, sean evans. evans yes from complex okay and he's everyone cites him as being the best interviewer Wow. kind of on the internet his questions are blow people away and you're like that so i think you're gonna do very well that means a lot and uh thank you yeah thank you you don't just come you don't just bring a guest in and then hope that they kind yes. of blow you know blow I'm, not here, away. I'm not here to, hopefully i know none of my guests have ever felt like i'm there to waste their time um no but i'll tell you this interesting okay. tidbit because i told this at tell this me. dinner party okay. last night uh so I, <laughs> in, I think it was June, um, I received a phone call from Ellen DeGeneres. Straight from her, like, yeah. not her producer. No, no. 
And here's here's how well that's oh, like that's what happened, and now I'll fill you in. Well, now be- I need to know. Because there's a roller coaster here that is worth riding. So all right, when I got fired from Barstool, right, I remember that. What I put out my apology statement on Twitter, sort of explaining why I had done what I did and 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 my mistake and apologizing for it. And one of the highest profile people to sort of come to my aid and and sort of forgive me and say like you know, you're going to be fine, was Ellen DeGeneres's producer, Andy Lassner. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's a pretty big yeah. personality. Right. He's got, I don't know, 600,000 yeah. followers on Twitter. He's verified and all of that. He's a known guy. And so he retweeted my apology statement and said something very kind like, I hadn't heard of you until today. Her story is tragic. The girl that I'd written about who passed away. Um, clearly, you made a mistake. I don't think you're a bad guy. The mob will come after you. It will pass. I send you my love, like, good wow. luck. And it, it meant really a lot sweet. to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that was a very dark day right. for me. And uh, that here was finally somebody, <laughs> as uh, Batman says to um, Commissioner Gordon <laughs> at the end of The Dark Knight Rises, a hero can be someone reaching out and just letting you know right. that their world hasn't ended. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> I love that quote. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so um, Andy Lassner was my commissioner, Gordon, in, in that in that tough moment for me, and um, I always, as a result, had a very high opinion of Ellen DeGeneres. I've always liked her; right. she's an amazing stand-up, and and you know, a, a trailblazing pioneer, mega celebrity, whatever. So, um, fast forward to when all those stories started coming out about her this yes. summer about how, you know, it was the early stuff before the toxic workplace, before the Racist. microaggressions and the sexual misconduct or the the harassment from some of the producers and things like that. And so at this point in the summer, it was really just that Ellen was not as nice of a person as people perceived her to be. And all these former staff writers were coming out with these stories about her and I was reading them, and I, I ended up writing a blog um, where I said basically, like one of the stories was that her bodyguard, who who had worked for her at the Oscars, went to the New York Post and was like, yeah, I have a story about Ellen. When I you know protected her at the Oscars, she never looked me in the eye. She never asked me my, my name. She was cold to me. And it was like, classic Ellen, this entitled bitch. And it's like... I, I wrote this blog being like, what fucking pussy bodyguard needs <laughs> their employer to know their name? This is why we only need to hire bodyguards from Israel. They don't, <laughs> former Mossad agents don't expect you to yeah. make eye contact with them. Like, how soft is this bodyguard? <laughs> this is pathetic. And it, it kind of like pissed me off. And then there was another story about, um, how when the iPhone had come out, Steve Jobs sent her one as a gift, and she texted him back saying that she thought that the uh, the font was too small to read on the screen. And everyone was like, well, how entitled is Ellen that she would just text Steve Jobs after getting a free iPhone? And I'm like, Steve Jobs is her friend, right? He was probably happy that she told her. Dude, not only that. that, but like think about your friend who has a startup company and he sends you a new pair of his like microfiber athletic shorts, 
right? And you text him and you're like, yo, the shorts are sick. Like, I wish the pockets were a little deeper. Steve Jobs and Apple, that is Ellen's friend who started a company. That's the level she's at, right? right? So her texting him that is just them operating. Does that make sense? Like, that's her... That's on par with who she is. Right. Meanwhile, everyone was like, how, "How? Of course, she thought she could just say that to Steve Jobs." And it's like, "Well, she should." Yeah. You know what I mean? So I wrote another one of that, and I imagined this very like you know I made up this dialogue, imagined dialogue between them, and that night, Andy Lastner, Ellen's producer, and to interrupt you, you wrote that on is it Bro, Bro Bible? Bible? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Um. He DM'd me on Twitter, okay. and he was like, we have shown Ellen. Ellen saw your blogs. She thought they were very funny. They gave her such a lift, and she's been so sad uh, in this in this rough time because people, this all these stories were just starting to come out, right. and everyone was just shitting on her and enjoying piling on. That's the way the entertainment industry works. And he was like, thank you so much. Um, what's your phone number? Uh, she's going to give you a call tomorrow, but she wants it to be a surprise. So you have to act like you didn't know <laughs> it, that it was happening. And I was like, oh my God, no way. So I gave him my phone number. And then the next morning, I'm up in Maine, right? In this little right. cabin, just sitting in this fucking cabin. And I get a phone call from an unknown number and I pick it up, unlisted number. Oh, it and I picked up. it up and she she goes, is this Mr. Is this Francis Ellis? And I was like, it is. She goes, this is Alan DeGeneres. And I was like, hi, Ellen, (laughs) DeGeneres, how are you, you know? And frankly, I was glad that I'd been tipped off because she's she's such a recognizable voice and such a big deal that I would not have kept my shit together had I I not known. Now, we then talked for half an hour about how to handle internet hate and trolls. And I was sort of advising her based on my experience at Barstool oh and how I've been, you know, fending off trolls for years, uh, how to disregard it and sort of framing it for her. And she was like, I just don't get why anyone would say these things. It's not how I'm wired. I don't attack people. And I was like, they're bored. The Internet's bored. You know, they're just coming after you. They want their pound of flesh. And then they're going to move on to the next one. She was like, so wise, just like you're writing. And I was like, oh, you're so sweet, Ellen. And uh, we had this great conversation. And at the end of it. She was like, I really like your writing. Um, We would love to work with you. Like, uh, you you know, is there any chance that you might consider coming to write for the show? And I was like, oh, my God, you know, it'd be amazing. She goes, I'm going to put you in touch with our head writer. Now, I can't remember what his name is, but there's a reason that I'm telling you this. And I'm almost done with the story, I promise. No, no, no. I I love the story. I I didn't. Again, I didn't think anything of it. I, I thought that she was just being nice and paying lip service to it. But that. That night, I got a voicemail from Ellen DeGeneres' head writer. I wish I knew his name. I can't remember his name. And um, he left me a long voicemail. The next day, I connected with him on the phone, and we mm-hmm. talked for a while about you know what a potential job at writing at Ellen would look like, or if it was a better fit for me to come to try to you know produce something with them on Ellen Tube or digital platform, or to work on her game show, Game of Games. And we were just talking about like a potential way for me to work with them. And I was so excited about this. I swear to God, one week after I got off the phone with that guy, the head writer at the Ellen DeGeneres show, he got me too'd 
by <laughs> by male like interns and staff writers at the Ellen DeGeneres show for having like groped their penises, kissed their necks. He he's gay and uh and got fired off the show and that was like the ultimate straw that crumbled the entire vision and that's when they like cleaned house. And he was the guy he was the guy like leading the toxicity. Wow. And then uh, and then I couldn't really tell people this story yeah. anymore because I was so proud to have heard from Ellen and to have received this validation. And then all of a sudden it was like I had been, you know, validated by <laughs> this horrific group of like fucking people. I, I, I and I, you know, I didn't know what I couldn't brag about it. Well, it doesn't take away from what you did or, you know, the, the way they saw you. I guess it, I do like. And I, I hate to make this comparison, but imagine that, like, before Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement, yeah. like a week before, <laughs> Harvey Weinstein had called you yeah, and he was like, I love your, your student film that you made. You know, we want to work with you. And you're like, this is a huge break. This right. is the highest profile person who has ever co-signed on my work. Right. And then a week later, they just, like, went down in flames. Okay, now then what have you been in contact with them since? Not, not really, dude. Like, what, what yeah, am I? What am I supposed? And first, Andy. For, so, I mean, my first thought would be that, given everything that happened to them, they couldn't hire me anymore. Given my somewhat toxic background, having you know been fired from Barstool and all of that. Yeah, but if someone, but you're, dude, the, they need to hire the only that right. they need to hire the squeakiest, cleanest people. Yeah, but then it, it that doesn't exist. You know what I mean? I mean, maybe a little bit less. Maybe they can't like, take a flyer on a straight white male like me who with with, with a, with a slightly toxic background. Yeah, they can't. They could take a flyer on, a, you know, the the indigenous lesbian <laughs> with, you know, transgender person from from yeah, yeah. country or whatever. So you haven't had any contact with them since you haven't reached out to Andy or I think I messaged Andy uh, once shit started to really get worse. And by the way, I still like stand by ellen i don't really i don't really care i'm sorry like i understand she's not as nice as people thought whoop de fucking do you're finding out that a person in entertainment who goes on and uh entertains on a talk show every Doing single day 30 years that it's a per somewhat of a performance and that right. behind the scenes she's not are you fucking kidding grow up peter pan <laughs> <laughs> like you know why are you surprised and david letterman notoriously was crotchety and yeah. and and mean to his staff he was having affairs with people and people still loved him you know it's like i hate that we are feel duped when we find out that people aren't who they say they were or aren't perfect you think or, elon musk oh, is out there handing out secret santa gifts to all of his tesla staffers <laughs> you know how hard it is to probably work at Tesla under that guy? Because that guy is tireless, right? He just he, became the richest man in the world. I saw time. that. I don't even... I, it's crazy. What the fuck? I mean, their stock is just <laughs> I know. <laughs> but, wow. Yeah. So... Well, that I, must have at least felt good for you. Well, I mean, like... When I got the phone yeah. call, I got off the phone and then ran down to my girlfriend and was legitimately screaming. In, in joy, like a giddy child. 
I couldn't believe it. You know, Ellen is, I would say, as far as like stand-up comics go, she's up there with, I would say she's like the Jerry Seinfeld of women, yeah. women comics. She's at that, at that level-ish. If, if you can be recognized by your first name, yeah. You are a legend. Dude, she's she's like it's Oprah. Yeah. Ellen. Kobe. Kobe Seinfeld. Yeah. yeah. People people one name people. Sting. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay, but at least that did that give you uh perhaps a little bit even after the cancellation of his produce his groping produ- producer, did it give you the motivation or the uh you know, the confirmation that you are you've got fucking you've got the goods. I think that was um that was a moment for me where I started to realize that uh for all the difficulty I've had and we were alluding to this mm-hmm. earlier you know the glacial progression that I've seen in my career from a stand up perspective my writing was actually catching the eyes of of bigger people mm-hmm. and it felt like that was a better place to focus. And it might have been that, that that phone call was the beginning of a transition of where I was going to spend the majority of my time for the next like five or six months leading to today. So because we, we, ta- we touched on it very briefly off air and I wanted to, to get into it because it, it sounded, um, I was very curious when you, when you kind of dropped it uh, before we got on air. You said, I don't even know what, the, I think, exactly word for word, but it was basically like, perhaps, and I don't know if it was a doubt with regards to your comedy, but realizing that there were other paths that were bringing your career uh, maybe to a place you want it to be. I'll, I'll let you kind of. I guess, yeah. So. Formulate it. You know, I've always loved stand-up comedy, and I always dreamed that that was the vision right you right. see yourself holding a microphone on stage and that seems very sexy and glamorous but i was realistic enough when i decided to attack comedy to know that there were various roads in here through you know improv writing sketch writing acting uh and and stand up there's all kinds of disciplines within the broader cheesecake of comedy so um, I was always attacking all of those, but I was definitely spending probably the most amount of time on standup because mm-hmm. you have to, right. you got to be up five, six nights a week doing two sets a night. You got to try to keep pace with the Mark Normans, the Sam Marils. You'll never match their hustle, but you got to be, you know, trying. Right. And, um, I was getting better. You know, I was in a good place. I was headlining on the road, I all this stuff and, you know, getting people out and I, I could feel myself getting stronger. But the progression in stand-up was just so, it was like an inch at a time. Um, one year to the next, you're, you're, you're 5% better. You're, you're not making like leaps and bounds. Uh, and, and anyone would tell you that. Bill Burr right. took him 15 years, he says, before he like got it. Louis C.K., same deal. And so I was on board with that. I was 10 years in, or I'm 10 years in now. And then COVID happened, and all of a sudden, stand-up stages went dark. And I was sort of left to my keyboard and broader projects and and different disciplines. And uh, 
all of a sudden with it with with much less effort those ideas that i was generating were were catching much more momentum that it felt than anything I had done in stand-up. When you say you felt that, was it because of the um, people reaching? You felt like it was reaching a bigger audience, people were reaching out saying they liked it. What was that it's, feeling? It's more like uh, companies, production companies, okay. studios saying, whoa, we really like this. Let's develop this. And you're getting, you start to get real names right. signing on to the stuff you're coming up with. Right. You know, I was never somebody who would walk into a comedy club and have Lauren Michaels in the audience right. discover me. You know, that never happened. Uh, whereas, you know, you had had the Ellen thing, just a, a little blog that I wrote defending right. her, and she like liked my tone. Or, you know, I had a, an idea for a TV show, which now we're I'm developing with like oh. a, a pretty a, a, a studio that I would never have thought would be interested in my work at least not for another like 15 years. Wow. Um, so there's like, there are things happening that almost make me wonder how much farther along would I be had I toned mm. back the stand-up earlier and focused more on the writing element because clearly this is where I'm better. And is, so there's one thing that I, I want to maybe ask right now. Um, I listened to over the summer and then I re-listened to it yesterday. I believe it is episode 128. Oh, gosh. I'm, I got the episode down because I, I wanted people, if they wanted to listen to it, because I felt like it was timeless in the messages mm. within this episode of Oops! The Podcast, which is your your podcast with uh, Giulio Gallerati. Yeah. I believe it's the one where you're opening up a little bit yeah. um, with regards to mental health and stuff like that. And because I also read an article that was uh, basically quoting that episode. Mm. Um, and for people that that haven't listened to it or haven't read the article. It was basically you saying, look, like, this is what I'm going through. I'm opening up about it with Julia, who's uh, like, probably one of your best friends at yeah. this point. Um, and it was a very interesting angle towards mental health. Now, I want to talk about that in a second, but was were all these things playing into that at that time? Dude, it's so funny you say that. I think that that episode... We recorded that, and then the Ellen thing happened like two days later. Wow. Um, and I was in a pretty sad... I was just feeling, like so many people were, I was feeling so beaten down by COVID. I was feeling marooned, you mm. know? I was up in the woods of Maine with my family and my girlfriend, which was, thank God, but, you know, hadn't seen my friends right. in months uh hadn't had was really missing stand-up for for whatever i just said you know at that point i hadn't come to the terms of that i i'm at now um and i just felt like a, a huge part part of my career had been ripped out yeah and i it didn't seem like covid was ever going to end yeah there was no talk of when a vaccine might come around and uh we didn't know so i just sort of said like this is how i feel right now and um Unfortunately, mental health issues are so ubiquitous among creatives and especially the comedy world. And I think that a lot of comics have to talk about it in a very glib fashion uh, as if it's like a badge to wear. Like, look, I'm one of us because I hate yeah. myself. You know, you can't take your you can't be a serious comic unless you consider yeah. suicide. Oh, he's one of us. He hates himself, too. Right. And 
I was not, I, I, I'm tired of that, you know, like, because there are, there are ways to talk about it where you can be more encouraging about it and helpful than just being another person who's like, we're all going through this together. You know, you're not alone. Like, I think that's a helpful thought in a way, but there are additional helpful thoughts of like, this is what I'm going through and this is how I'm trying to fucking fix it and being proactive about staving off these spiraling sessions I go through. Well, I think also what was, uh, what I thought was super interesting about that episode and what the article talked about as well um, was what your girlfriend told you yeah. um, to kind of snap you out of it, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know if, what's the exact quote? Do you? Yeah, she, and it's so funny you say this because her words resonated with so many people. I got I'm, so many messages about what she right. had said and not just from people suffering, you know, from, from depression themselves, but also people dating people with depression. Uh, and they were like, I'd never heard someone say that. And I then I, I, you know, where can I find more of the information that your girlfriend used to get that? And what she said was, you know, in a particularly r rough moment where I was just very withdrawn and, and, and like telling her that I didn't understand how to like move forward. She grabbed my hands and we were standing in the kitchen and I remember and she like kind of shook me and she said, you're too smart to let these thoughts win. And it was a in a, it was like a just an amazing light bulb moment for me that reframed the thoughts i was having as an irrational opponent and it 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 stirred this like competitive i'm a competitive person i played sports my whole life all of a sudden i saw it uh, as like an opponent uh, instead of just being this intrinsic right. part of me and it, 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 and then I became some, I was like, all right, now I can take steps to actually like work against this. How can I beat this? How can I fight it? And I think that's important too, because, well, also that's, that's a pretty amazing girlfriend because she knows, she knows you and she knows yeah. what that's going to say. That's going to get, turn you on a little, yeah. like get you, get you there. Right. And I think also, I mean, first of all, I, I relate to, to to even that quote that she said. I mm -hmm. think that's a that's a powerful it's a powerful one for for everyone out there. But um, the fact that she knows to to make it almost like a competition or to make it to turn because you have that lacrosse background and you played lacrosse at the highest level for a long time, uh, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, no, I mean it was uh, I had it it definitely reminded me just how. Um, aware and smart she is and i was so grateful to have a partner uh who knows me that well and i can't say that um her intention in saying that was to stir the competitive feelings that i had or whatever it's but it, whatever it was it was the first thing i'd heard that like totally changed the way that I viewed my own feelings. What did you say right after, you know? Do you remember? Uh, I don't really remember. I kind of just let her talk because she seemed to have the ball <laughs> pretty well at that moment. Um, but that was the thing that really stuck out to me. And then I started saying, all right, well, if 
depression or or self-loathing are is just this you know i could i could it almost it has its own form and i could see it as something to to combat then what were as an athlete like what were the steps that i would take mm. if i you know as we were preparing to play right. some other team and we would scout them like what were the necessary things we would do i started coming i was like all right you know exercise obviously is to me the single most useful yeah. way to combat depression that's always been my way uh and i i am religious about exercising um eating well getting to bed early yeah. less screen time uh corresponding with my parents every day trying to wake up in the morning and just quickly go through three things in your head that you're happy about mm -hmm. and grateful for um rolling on the floor with the dog you know just carving out time to do these like you know undeniably positive things um and and i guess that and, and then reading too you mm -hmm. know there were things that i i just looked at in the same way that like a, a basketball player might say i need to spend half an hour working on ball handling half an hour working on free throws half an hour working on you know my elbow jump shots like those i, I charted out a, a basically a workout plan to beat the thoughts well it's also it, it seems like you went back to your roots and what worked and what you and what you knew was good for you yeah yeah, and, and and the thing is, you know, I have always tried to be very disciplined about those things I just listed, but now, you know, actually seeing them as like a, a legitimate recipe for fighting this opponent, these these thoughts, uh, these you know, uh, that that weren't my own, right? They were just polluting thoughts that I didn't want to have right. and you know was a piece of my brain that had kind of just malfunctioned basically um these were the pieces that I could use to sort of ward them off and listen I've I've had those thoughts again I certainly have but to be able to say like ah I'm having that thought go for a fucking run dude or just go walk outside and like get some sunshine mm -hmm. um you've got an aspirin in a way to take right. to, to, to sort of like nip it in the bud as opposed to my old problem was that thought would begin and then I would I would let it really dig in I would really let it fester and grow roots and allow you know spiral and then kind of just affect my entire day did people reach out after that episode of of the podcast with um you know saying I don't know a host of things to you yeah yeah i mean i think i think a lot of people were very grateful uh that i had shared that but they were also just like i think as you said what my girlfriend had said struck such a chord with right. so many people because m people hadn't heard that yeah and i don't know that she's like the first person to ever say that but um a lot of people hadn't heard it that way and uh i just i was glad to to sort of bring her new angle to things. Well, I think it's also important because you're, um, I think people look at you uh, as a comedian, as a smart comedian, a smart man in general, but I think for a smart comedian male to talk about mental health um, in that light and not in like the victim mentality, not mm -hmm. like, you know, that I think is was refreshing mm -hmm. because I think oftentimes it's like, 
as you said, like some comedians, and I think we can think of a lot of the sim- same ones, they wear it as a badge of victimhood, mm-hmm. of, ah, I have, you know, depression, and this is my brand of comedy. I think that the fact that you came out and said it the way you did um, resonated with me, and that's why that's why I remembered the, the episode number, and that's why I urge you after this to go check it out and check out that article that I believe mm. was, I think it was like D-Marge or something like that. Yeah. Um, because it's in a lot of ways timeless. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that even if it was recorded four or five months ago, there's a lot of really cool lessons. And the, the last 10 minutes, I think is talking about dick jokes or something like that <laughs> that you received, which was also entertaining. But um, it's a great episode. So I think people should listen to that. But thank you. What is, uh, I was curious. So you said two days after that, you get the Ellen call. Yeah. Then a week after that, you find out that guy gets canceled. <laughs> yeah. Are you... I can't... I can't. It might have been a little bit longer after that, but I, I can't remember exactly. Can, can you look up... Any chance that you can look up... His um, name? The name of the head writer at Ellen who got in trouble? Because I don't want to... Um, I don't want to go forward without having the proper info. Yeah, Kevin, Kevin <laughs> Lehman. Yeah, that's the guy who called me. Dude, that's the guy. Holy shit. He was the head writer at the show. And we were talking about potentially a, a, a life-changing job opportunity for me. But it, was that crushing when... No, no. Because, it didn't work out? Because I wasn't necessarily sure that that's right. what I wanted to do. Okay. Uh, you know, it would have meant moving to Los Angeles, which oh. I didn't really want to do, and becoming a staff writer on a, a daytime talk show. Which, and not not to mention, you know, even the head writer Kevin Lehman was like, just so you know, we've had we've hired standups in the past, but it hasn't worked out because writing here is such an all encompassing job. It's right. it's so demanding of your time that they were not able to like get to spots at night, uh, and then they had to leave because they prioritized standup. So. When he said that, I was like, all right, I'm not really sure that that's the right place. So now with regards to your stand-up career, where do you f- stand on it today? Man, that's a great question. I, I don't really know. All I can say is that I don't really miss it that much. I haven't mm. performed in probably a month, maybe a little longer. I did go on the road to Kansas City and did a full weekend there, which was really fun. I loved it again and felt reinvigorated after that. But the old routine of, you know, you do your work all day and then you get on a city bike and you bike over to the stand and the New York Comedy Club and you're out doing spots from 7.30 till 10.30 p.m., I don't know, man. It just I I don't I don't really miss that that much. And it's funny because I'm hesitant to even admit it because in stand up in New York, the moment you say like I have doubts that I want to be doing this, people like excommunicate you. Huh. They don't they don't think you're part of the mix anymore. You're not one of us anymore. And it takes you so long to become part right, of that inner right. circle. Um and you have to stay with it by getting up and constantly showing face and hanging, hanging at the club hours out, out upon hours. And I just I didn't I didn't miss that that much. Have you talked to fellow standups about this feeling? I have. Um, and I, you know, I'm very good friends with Shane Gillis. And, you know, Shane is to me 
the next big stand-up star. Okay. Uh, I really believe that. Um, and he's out. You know, he's still out. He he can't stop. Like it's his. Pa- it's it's. He knows unequivocally right. that that's what he wants to do. And I envy that. But I'm also against his feelings and his certainty. It's even more clear to me that, you know, I can't say that stand up for for me is the end all be all. Hmm. Like my dream, yes, originally was to be a a an arena comic or a theater comic selling out doing specials every year all that um and now i have to say it's morphed like i i can't i i I might be just as happy if not happier to be you know writing a a tv show on netflix or starring in a tv show or hosting a late night show whatever i'm open to the idea of different dreams Hmm. are there any particular dreams that stand out in your head of the things you just listed of atop that list? Well, I think some of them seem closer at hand than others. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, uh, especially in the TV world, a series is something that really excites me right now. Um, whether I'm acting in it or not, or, or just, uh, you know, producing it and, and writing for it and, um, all of that, that is a very exciting thing. And, 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 the big reason is that it's it's a distinct possibility for me right now. There are, I'm working on something, and you know, are you one of the to talk about it a little bit. Not really. I, I don't. I, I, there there have been rumors about it. You know, people have talked about it. It's a it's a show that I that I've created that uh, you know is loosely based on on some of the experiences that I've had okay. over the last five years. But um, I it's one of those things where it's like I don't want to talk about it because. It could just die tomorrow. Right. It's so binary. It's either going to be <laughs> the greatest thing that has ever happened to me in my life, or it's not going to be anything at all. Does that stress you out? <sighs> it didn't for a long time because I was just convincing myself that it wasn't going to happen right. and betting against it and really committing my brain to the exercise of saying, it's not real, it's not real, mm-hmm. it's not real. But you cross a point where the pieces keep coming together and it keeps taking shape and more and more people get interested and more and more people buy in and names get attached and money gets figured out and contracts get signed. And all of a sudden you realize if this doesn't happen, I will be heartbroken. And that's the way the entertainment industry works a lot of the time. And unfortunately, it just a flip, a a switch was flipped where one day I woke up and I was like, we've come so far now that if this does not happen, uh, I will be devastated and I'm there. That's where I am. And and, and unfortunately, I don't think that we're, you can't even say that we're more likely for this show to happen now. Hmm. I don't know that we can. There, I don't know what yard line we're on, but I, we're definitely not in the fucking red zone. But what's still, I think, uh, I've noticed in in learning about your career and you is that regardless of those, I mean, you've had, I think, throughout your career, just big moments, like, mm-hmm. and moments that sometimes for people could be incredibly debilitating. The whole barstool thing. But you've always come. You've always come back from it. You'll, you'll, 
you'll be okay. You'll figure your shit out. You're a smart guy. Everyone says it to you, but you like, you know that, but you, you like, I think that's at the end of the day, the, uh, the thing that reassures me as someone that, that, that it's now your, your friend that, that I, you know, that, that wants you to succeed. I think I have, at least from personally, and I think I speak for a lot of people, the utmost confidence that even if it's not this, something else, you know, will present itself. People say that, and I appreciate not that, that. Not that that is going to no, no, give no. you any comfort. Because I, I, I know, know you want it to succeed as much as before. I think that I hope that when I'm 40 okay. or 45, I will believe that too. Okay. Because I will have had enough failures where they seemed like the end of the road right. and then something else popped up and then that happened or and then that failed and and then the work regenerates right to the point where you realize i can make a career uh out of uncertainty right. it's fine for me i i trust my own ability to yeah. come up with new ideas right. to make a living and you've done it for 10 years well I no? can't. I can't say that though, because because for the first five years that I was in New York, maybe six years, I was tutoring, right? right? Okay. And I was doing stand up, making no money in stand up. And then I worked at Barstool, and I had a good career there. And then I Barstool, I got fired, and I thought, oh shit, my life is over. And then I got picked up by Bro Bible, and 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 now you know things are going great. Um, however, I don't know that I can say that I've I've got enough. Uh, of a gra- of a groundwork lane laid uh that I trust the regeneration of opportunity if things fail. But is that you being too hard on yourself or is that you being objective? Um probably a little bit of both. Right. Here, okay. Here's what I mean, okay? First of all, there's no road back to tutoring or right. another job. I burned the ships. Okay. Do you know that yeah. story? Tell, tell it to me. Yeah. I don't know. Some Greek mythology where, you know, the idea was that the, the conquering force arrived at the shores of the city they okay. intended to conquer. Okay. And then the leader of that army lit all of the ships on fire and burned them because he wanted to say to his troops, we are not retreating. Okay. You must win. And that's the only way forward. We're not, I'm ruining the road back. Uh, And it's a metaphor and whatnot. And, um, but for me, I didn't, I didn't necessarily do it intentionally. I have just, there, there's too much content at this point of me on the internet, making dick jokes, talking about masturbation, talking about my drug use, that there is no parent in New York that would entrust me with the private education of their child. Does that make sense? Sure. And by extension, there is no law school that would accept my application. There is no business school. There is no investment banking firm. A lot of these these roads that I might have had as you know someone with a good college degree. I might disagree, but okay. I mean, it's it's it would be tough. It's tough to make the case at this point. Okay, dude. There's too much. There's I've just said too much. I've said too much. I'm too transparent. Okay. But but I'm at I'm I'm at peace with that. Okay. Because I do think that once you can really dive into the pool, your work gets better. Yeah. Once you yeah. commit to this being your only thing, you get better. 
because you become more honest, you become more transparent about yourself. Uh, and I've taken that plunge. I took that the first year that I was at Barstool. I basically I sold my soul, so to speak, right? So now it has to be in this realm that I work. I don't know what maybe maybe I could get into porn. Like they wouldn't <laughs> mind, you know. That I had said those things. They'd be like, come on over. That's adjacent. Uh, but the, I, there's no other road. There's no back, There's no road back to the other life. Okay. My dad doesn't run a company that I could go work for. Uh, tutoring is dead. Becoming a teacher, dead. Right? M- maybe you disagree. I, okay. But, but let's assume that that's true. Yeah. Let's assume that that's true. Right? So then it's only been four or five years that I have made a, a a substantial living where I could pay my rent and put my, you know, pay for my groceries and cover my credit card bills and live well in comedy. Okay. And that just isn't enough time yet for me to feel assured that if the work I have right now ends or if a TV project doesn't happen, that I'll find the next thing. Gotcha. I don't have confidence in my regenerative ability yet. And I think I need another five jobs before I'll feel that way. Maybe never. But that lack of certainty is another thing that that forces me to produce. Yeah. I mean, I think it also and you're also you come from the competitive brand, I think. So it uh, fuels you in a way. Yeah. Do you disagree? I I agree. And, And Beck Bennett on Saturday Night Live did a an interview with Larry King. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know why I saw this, but there was one snippet that stuck with me. And it's when he said, one thing I've learned is that you've never made it. Yeah. You've never made it. You get to the next level, but you have to continue to fight. Right. Like even, even Letterman, the king of late night, who would sign, you know, a five-year contract extension worth whatever two hundred million dollars at CBS? Do you think that that meant he could just go into cruise control and and let the show run itself? No, he had to continue to fight because if he didn't, Conan and Kimmel and Fallon would just eat into his market share and. Uh, you have to come up with new ideas. You have to keep developing and keep in- inventing. And there's no rest in this in this industry. And I think all great and successful people, regardless of industry, never feel that sense of satisfaction. Or they'll never feel like, I right. made it. You right. know what I mean? I, I don't think Letterman would even sit here today and tell you that he thinks he made it. You have to wonder. I mean, once you get, like, the Mark Twain prize. Yeah, but... I don't know. Or, or you know, does you, LeBron think he made thinks he made it? Maybe to a, to a certain extent, but for him, his standard is so different. His standard is maybe Jordan. Yeah, you know exactly. So yeah, yeah, he's trying. He's trying to be one of one. He's right. Trying to be the and I think, that, but best. I do think that you. I think that you have that of. Look, I sit with a lot of successful people. A lot of people who've done a lot of great things, and a lot of the common theme that I always feel at certain times is they always. I don't I don't ever see you sitting here and telling me, yeah, I f- you know, I'm satisfied with all like like I'm I'm good. I don't ever see you being 100% satisfied. I think there'll be times that you are satisfied, but I don't ever see you like sitting there and thinking you could hit cruise control. True. But here's what I would say. Okay. 
there are pieces of my career, and I would point to stand-up especially, where if stand-up comedy and live entertainment were never to return to the world because COVID just continued to mutate and we just couldn't have indoor gatherings or whatever, if it's dead, I look back on my stand-up career and I'm satisfied with it. Good. And that's largely because I filmed a special at the Wilbur Theater. And I'll always have that night where I had 2,000 people there who bought tickets and I had an hour of material right. and I, you know, I got a, a good reception for it. Yeah. Um, so that piece is, to me, if it's dead, it's complete. It's, I don't want to say complete, but I'm satisfied. To good. me, that was a success and I'm happy with it. Uh, but... Here's my question to you. Okay. Do you have a do you have a monetary number in your mind where if you were to make that amount of money in a year for your podcast okay. or for any of the other projects or or creative ideas that you've worked on or want to work on, what like what that number would be where you'd be like, "Holy shit, what a great year. I'm so happy I made that much." Like what is that number to you? That's a great question. I haven't thought about that. Um, I still... See, the way I see it is I'm still so early yeah. in everything. Right. Right, in my career, if you will. Like, I I still go to school. I'm still... Right. So, I don't know if... And, and I still, you know... That's a good question. So So, right now... My number is $500,000. Okay. If I made $500,000 in a year, right? Telling you right now today, I would I think I would be like, "Holy shit, what a year," right? But I also know that the year where I do make $500,000, I'm not going to be satisfied. Oh, yeah. I will I would put my house on it that that's yeah. how you feel. Exactly. So you you reach these tiers, but by the time you've reached them, you've already looked way past. Right, you'll be thinking the about benchmark. the but why why didn't I make a million or when am I going to make that million? And you'll have forgotten that you ever set that as a goal in the oh, first right. place. But I think that that's also part of th- that. I think is the mentality of someone who wants to do something memorable that wants to that doesn't want to be average that wants to be great. Fine, but I also see this. Among my friends who just work for the sake of making money. Hmm. Because there's always somebody that makes more money than you. It's true. And I have friends that are making... I, I, I have a friend this year who made $15 million. Whew. I'm serious. You know, is he ha- is, Do you feel like he's happy? You know, I don't... I don't know that I don't know. I don't know if he's because I feel like I've asked him that and I don't know if he knows how to answer that or how to take stock of it. It's an obscene amount of money. That's an, that's an absurd amount of money. Yeah. I mean, he's one of the best traders on Wall Street and he he had a banner year trading on the volatility uh, between April and May or maybe it was March and April yeah. uh, uh, brought on by COVID. And um, he's, you know, he's never going to want for money for the rest of his life. 
But the problem with having that friend right. is that all my other friends in finance, <laughs> some of whom make $2 million a year, $600,000 a year, $800,000 a year, all of those numbers to me in comedy are bananas. Yeah. Bananas amounts of money. And those guys all feel like pathetic failures <laughs> against the orders Isn't of magnitude hilarious? higher that our friend the trader makes. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> it's sad. Yeah. I do I do I am grateful that we are in a field where your success is not necessarily measured in right. your, your paychecks, in your bank statements. And I think largely the opposite. I think a lot of people are a lot of comedians are successful and they're not being rewarded accordingly. Right. I think that there are guys who for whom if they got past at the comedy cellar, they would say, what a banner year. Right. All my dreams have been, been met. Uh, I think that there are people for whom it would be a late night appearance, for whom it would be you know, playing a theater or opening for a great comic or getting a phone call from Ellen DeGeneres. And I'm, I'm glad that there are multiple ways to feel validated mm -hmm. in what we do. Uh, but I also think it's in incredibly important to keep your mind open mm -hmm. to the idea of, of feeling validated in ways that you didn't plan for. Had you ever thought about these kinds of ideas pre-COVID, pre this summer, pre that slump, if you will? Honestly, no. I think that I had this blind chase mentality of like, I need to get this and I need to get this by this year and these are the things I need uh, in order to feel like I'm moving forward. Mm -hmm. And I have become more cerebral and uh, sort of trying to be more introspective and, and, and I guess take a bird's eye view of progress um, for myself because it hasn't panned out the way that I thought. And for so long, I was just like holding on to this ride, this weird ride of my of my work. And once you're able to actually step away from it all yeah. and sort of say like, well, that was pretty cool, you know? Um, it allows you to, I guess, just, just feel better about what you're doing. Do you feel like in, in that, I mean, do you feel like you need, you needed this, this, do you do, do you I see do it think, as a wake up call? I do think I do think that um, you know, I hate to be this guy, but I do think COVID has been good in many ways for my thought process. Right, it has forced me to reconsider what matters. Um, so what really matters for you, dude? F my family. Yeah. No, no question. My family. My sister. My older sister just had a baby a month ago. Wow. And I got so to, you're an uncle. I am. Brand Congratulations. new. Fresh. Fresh, fresh uncle. uncle. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we were supposed to meet her at Thanksgiving and we canceled Thanksgiving because things were crazy and my sister hadn't had the baby yet. So like we didn't we, we didn't want to expose her to multiple family members coming right. from different states right, right, right. and all of that. So we hung on until Christmas and dude, I spent four days with her at Christmas and I, I hate to sound, you know, like this guy, but holding my niece, this brand new baby was 
just like it 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 just said it made me feel stupid for believing a lot of the things that yeah. I did before. I was like, why did I care about that? Or why did I care that that troll said that comment to me? If you're ever hung up on haters responding to you on Instagram, hold, hold a, a baby. fucking baby. Yeah. Hold a baby you're you related to and yeah. it will Im- instantly <laughs> evaporate all the time you spent thinking about that. I love that. It's the ultimate anti-troll. It's the troll buster. It's, it's the troll buster. And and then you'll also think like, you know, that troll wouldn't have said that if they had held a baby. Or if they Somebody saw you needs, hold the baby. Someone needs to get a baby into the hands of that troll. Because that they wouldn't be saying that if they could, if they could hold a baby. How have you handled, like, the over the years, the different... I feel like you've had a different set of trolls, no? The barstool trolls are, are a certain type. Um, That's usually what it is. Really? Yeah. So there was one thing that, that I wanted to, to pick your brain at really quick. You said... Uh, I don't want to misquote you. But when you talked about going to Barstool, you said you sold your soul. Or I don't know if it was exactly like that. Do you, is that, would that be accurate? Fair? Yeah, that's what I said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I don't mean that, by the way, I don't mean that like uh, against Barstool. Right, 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 I understand that. But I, because it's interesting that you say that because I always thought, I always thought like, okay, if Barstool called me tomorrow mm-hmm. and they said, hey, we want to take your podcast or bring you on some some capacity, I kind of always thought that the feeling that I might get from that, this is a complete hypothetical, this has never happened, would be in, in, a, in a weird way like I would be selling myself to this company that is controversial, that, you know, that, and I think in a lot of ways can at oft, oftentimes is misrepresented. Um, but I'm curious because you were on the inside and, uh, you know, if that would be accurate or, or how you feel about that. I, uh, so when I say that I sold my soul at barstool what i mean is that there were i i had to decide to share personal elements of my life and that once i did that okay i started succeeding much more at the company interesting instead of just being a guy who blogged about you know whatever happened in the locker room of the tampa bay buccaneers that weekend or you know making jokes all the time that are very surface level. I started writing about my neuroses and, you know, interactions that I'd had with dates or family members, you know, without trying to shield them a little bit, but, but failing to protect everyone um, and and being very transparent. And the the moment I did that, I started connecting with an audience on a much deeper level and developing strong, a stronger fan base. Um, as opposed to just being a character. Do you get that at Bro Bible as well? Um, you know, I think I think uh Bro Bible is is really great at um yeah, yes, I, I have I have a similar outlet there to share my my personal voice kind of. Um but I think at at the same time, like I have developed a fan base who kind of knows what to expect from me and they will find my work at bro bible and my goal is to like bring them to the site where they can just they can find other writers and talented people that they like too okay um whereas barstool for me was a place to start from scratch and Mm. try to like foster 
a fan base and, and, and you know get get people to know me and get to know people there. So now, what's your daily schedule look like today? I mean, assuming. So are I mean, are your plans if say there is a vaccine and all that, if comedy clubs reopen to at least dabble a little? I yeah, mean, I what? gotta go back, dude. I I, I have to. Uh, if for no other reason than to to make sure that it's not what I want to okay. do. You know, I can't I can't close that the book on that definitively. Um and it's, it's not really something you ever have to no be open or closed on. Judd Apatow came up doing stand up. Right. You know, he made his early career as a 16-year-old interviewing interesting the famous comedians of the day. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a great book about it. Um it's sort of like a collection of his transcribed okay. interviews from from his youth where he's interviewing, you know, Seinfeld and, and other like legendary people. Right. And he's 16 years old and he was doing that and he was doing stand up. And then I think in his early 20s, he started to get some success as a writer and director, Freaks and Geeks, stuff like that. And he stopped doing stand up and then he didn't do it for like 20 years. And then he came back to it in his 40s and found a renewed love for it. And that was like kind of when he was ready to dive back in. I'm not saying I'm going to take 20 years off, but uh, I think that that example lets me know that it's kind of okay to come in and out of stand Are you still writing jokes or content or material? (sighs) Yes, I am. But I'm also writing more stuff that's not right. that's less stand up y and is more, you know, like I want to say like world building y okay. or, <laughs> you know, laying an outline for a movie or a potential novel or, you know, it's just more long form stuff. The thoughts play out less set up punchline. Have you enjoyed that more? I enjoy that they are, these ideas are met with more, um, excitement by people with power (laughs) (laughs) okay you know like i would there's just there's an there there just seems to be it uh a a quicker road (laughs) in this world um to to success and and paychecks i hate to say that no 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 but it's honest yeah which part of your work day would you say you enjoy the most though just raw enjoyment you know what i really love doing are these parking videos i was gonna i was wanted to bring that up i really like um doing these parking videos that i've been doing they're Uh, great thank you i saw the one where you got the ticket yeah that was unfortunate that was probably the worst one though, because there was nobody on the street that day. The best part is interacting with the people yeah. on the street and, and trying to really showcase the anxiety and the chaos. Well, I just read a New York Times. I don't know if you saw it. There was a New York Times article about yeah, the exceedingly uh, what is it? There's so many cars and tickets and all that. Yeah, basically, um, when the outdoor the restaurants opened up all, a lot of these outdoor dining places, that the city gave them, you know, a lot of space on the sidewalk or the bus lane or whatever that might be used. For parking so a lot of the parking spaces have been have disappeared and so with fewer parking spaces uh and more people needing cars the the demand for parking in new york has reached a hysterical level uh which translates to people getting angry very quickly so where did the where did the alternate side parking idea come from 
My girlfriend had a coworker who one day she had expressed via some, you know, Slack chat uh, how hard it was for us to find parking on the street in New York and was wondering if everyone was just paying the $500 a month for a parking garage thing. And one of her coworkers said that every week they took, he and his wife or whatever, took turns sitting in their car from 9 to 10.30 during the window when the street sweeper comes. That allows you to not get a ticket. And if you sit in your car, you wait for the street sweeper to come. And you get your spot. You, he, he comes, everyone pulls out into the street, he cleans, and then you re-parallel park and you take back your spot. And then I did it. I decided to try it for the first time. And I just started shooting some Instagram stories of the of it. And it was very kind of raw. And I didn't know what was going on. And I put up like six or seven stories, including when the sweeper came, which was terrifying. <laughs> because I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know the process. Mm. And there is a process. And most people get it, but a bunch don't. And all it takes is one person who doesn't know what they're doing to fuck the whole thing up. And then you also get people coming in to try to prey upon oh, yeah. those people and, and steal spots. And so I took this and I got a bunch of DMs from people being like, yo, this is wild. <laughs> what is this? And then my manager was like, why the hell did you not post that as a full post? This is one of the funniest things I've seen you do. And I was like, all right, next week I'll do a full one. And then the next week, I you know I I just did a bunch of clips. I sent it over to my editor to kind of cut. Yeah. And if you go back and watch the first one, since then, it's developed. They get better each week. So much where like now I know the guy who drives the street <laughs> yeah. sweeper, and he's become a character. And you know I know people on the street. I have like terms I use, and you know, there's just I get it. So I have a very good understanding of how it works now, and it's very fun to try to capture it. And it changes every week because you never know what's going to happen. But it's, always, it's always every Thursday. Every Thursday, yeah. Alternate side parking Thursdays. I love it. <laughs> I mean, it's, just... it's one of those things that you don't even expect, but it, who knows? Maybe it could turn into a little uh, sketch one day or well, something. This is, dude, this is the thing about comedy and social media where, yeah. you know, it seems like everything that I thought would work in my career didn't. And then the things that I really? didn't think would work. What did you think? Did. Would, what did you think would work, and that didn't? Um, I once tried to do a series of makeup tutorials, huh. spoofing all these YouTube stars who make do these makeup tutorials, and yeah. I thought that me doing bad makeup tutorials, not knowing what I was doing, would be funny. It wasn't that great, right? But I thought that that would be hysterical. And then one day I sat down at my piano during the final season of Game of Thrones and just like sang to the theme song of Game of Thrones what I thought would happen on the episode that night in one minute. And those videos started blowing up. Wow. And I'm like, really? This is what they like? Instead of the highly produced makeup tutorials? So it's like Game of Thrones songs, right? Alternate side parking Thursdays. I don't know. I'm just throwing shit at the wall. I have no idea what's going to work. And it's terrifying. Is it? Isn't yes, it kind of because exciting too? It is exciting. It's really exciting when you find something that yeah. works. But it also leaves you vulnerable right, right. to try something 
that could either not work or get you in huge yeah, trouble. Yeah, but I think it, which is exactly what happened at Barstool. That's true, but right. Right. And everyone's like, you should have known better. And it's like, dude, I have no idea what right. I'm doing. Right. I have not known what I'm doing since the moment I started this. I don't know what's funny. I don't know what's funny. I don't know what people will think is funny from me. So I'm guessing. I'm guessing. And you hope that your your hits go from like 10% to 20 You just want to increase right. Right. your hit rate. But I don't know. I don't know what. Like tomorrow I'll shoot a video and people will fucking hate it. And then the next day I'll be like, well, maybe this will work. And all of a sudden it'll go viral. And you're like, why? Why? I have no idea. That's something. <laughs> now, going back to your, to, to wrap things up, to, going back to your question on um, when you asked me what, the, what that big number would be um, mm. where I would feel like I made it. For you, not number, but say... Because I feel like even in the years since I've seen you, there's been a lot of changes, obviously, to the world. But even for you, like, career-wise, the way you view it, trajectory. In five years, if there was a place or a thing that would were to happen in your career that you would say, I'm satisfied. And, of course, maybe 10 years down the line, that would change. What would it be? All right. So... Before COVID, I would have had a very different answer. Right. But, and I, this is, this is going to sound sappy. Right now, my answer to that question is that in five years, if I am working in a job in comedy that makes me laugh, that relies on me contributing ideas uh, and coming up with new ideas, that pays me a salary that allows me to like take my wife out to dinner once a week and take my family on a vacation mm -hmm. uh, for a week of the year and gives me the option to put my kids through private school if we so choose and not necessarily worry about their college tuition someday. Not have it answered, but like I'm contributing to their college right. fund. Um, and I've got health care. And I know that the next year, it's very likely that that job will continue. To me, that would be success in five years. Beautiful. Yeah, but I'm not there yet. Hey, but it gives right you now, something every day to... It does. But that's that's right? a very amorphous I, goal. Do you know what I mean? No, yeah. Like, that's so broad. But that's okay. Because you have, especially from what you're describing, again, I'm I'm hearing it from the outside looking in, there are people that are noticing and I can tell that I can tell. I, I don't even need you to tell me those stories to, mm. for me to, to, to know that there are people that are noticing people follow you on Instagram. People react to you. People like your podcast. I mean, I, you even see some of your tweet, like there are some tweets that go really viral. There are people that notice what you're doing. And I think that whether you don't know exactly what way you're going to go or if it's right or left or comedy or not comedy, Things are happening. Yeah. I, I believe so. And I and I don't know. And I think that and I think again, going back to that to listening to you open up about uh, you know, where you were mentally and and the little things that have happened even in just the last six months, it's really it's really I think first of all, I thank you just as a really as a fan too, to to see someone that you respect in in I mean, I would say you're in multiple fields, podcasting, comedy, whatever. 
to open up about that, but also to realize like, man, like people probably look to you as someone who has their all, all their shit together and you might feel like you don't. Mm. And I think that's beautiful. Dude, yes. I thank you. Um, it's very frustrating uh, to not feel like you have your shit together. And to, to be no. as uncertain I about feel your future I feel the same as way. I am. Yeah. Um, as a young person, your 20s are fucking hard, dude. You gain more certainty as you get older. Mm -hmm. But that uncertainty and that confusion is it's scary, um, disorienting. You just feel like it's never going to fucking materialize. Right. Julio on the podcast, my co-host, said once like... <laughs> Uh, that when he was 24, someone, or I guess when he was 29, someone said to him, oh, wow, you're about to enter your money-making years. <laughs> and at the time, he was like, That's the worst he thing couldn't, but he couldn't understand what that meant. Because up to that point, he had lived paycheck to paycheck, right. right? And he'd like scraped by. And the amount of kind of just like improvising and trying to do a commercial here and maybe doing some tennis lessons there and getting a little bit of money from opening for some guy. And, and you know, you, you kind of barely make rent for like six years, month after month. And all of a sudden, you find that you've got a little bit more leisure mm -hmm. in your bill pay. Uh, and you're and you 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 finding that you can buy yourself a nice thing and not like worry about what you're gonna have to sacrifice for it, um, and I don't know where that comes from. You just get better at making money. Most people do, not everybody, but if you're smart and you learn along the way, you should. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, but at the same time, dude, like I I live in constant un uncertainty and fear that I and and part of this is that I got fired. Right. right kind of like out of the blue right. one day uh which i caused but the day before i never would have thought that i was going to get fired the next day right so once that happens I, every day i think i'm going to get fired today that never leaves me mm, that's interesting i have no certainty in my job i don't feel like i have job security in any work mm. that i do um and not only that but i Unfortunately, I'm constantly waiting for that tweet from someone who digs something up from my past, some oh, soundbite yeah. or some, you know, thing that hasn't aged well where I was trying to be funny and it comes up and by that point I'm big enough that people care and then they get angry and I'm fucked. I'm just waiting for that to happen. Yeah. Uh because you know, you try to inoculate yourself against it. You you go through your Twitter history and you you search your own keywords and you're like, well, good. I've never said you know the N word and I've never said the gay any gay epithets. I've never you know, I've not been racial. I've not been misogynistic. I've I've scrubbed it all, whatever. And you think you're clean, but then it's like someone finds the clip of you on someone's podcast from five years ago where you chimed in. When they were making crazy yeah, jokes, if, uh, yeah, and you're like, you're just trying to be in the, in the, and it's not as you know who knows who knows what it'll be, right, right. because in five years, it'll change, yeah, that it's changed what people care yeah. about, and so 
to me, it's not even necessarily a question of whether or not I've said something. It's a question of whether or not I'm big enough for people to want to bring it up. Yeah. Like, it's a scary way to, that's isn't scary, that, doesn't that suck? Thought. Like with success, yeah. let's say that the T, you know, right now I'm in this safe zone because I'm not successful enough for people to do their homework, to sleuth around, no. to find that, that misspoken thing. But the more successful I get, the more people will commit time to combing through my record, through my efforts, through my throwing shit at the wall, trying to be funny all these years, not knowing. And they'll find something for sure. Does that affect the way you operate on a daily basis? It's, I mean, at the very least, I'm aware now. Right. So I am constantly operating as though I'm under a microscope. Right. Um, What's that feel like? It's fine. It's fine. It's just challenging. I'm not I'm not blaming these people. Like from now on, I get it, right? And 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 part of me thinks that that's fair. Mm. You enter the big leagues, the you've got to just be more accurate. Right. You have to be better. Um but I also hope because it, it's not going to be I'm not going to get canceled for something that happened after I got fired from Barstool until you know, from this point forward, I will get canceled for something that I did when I was 23, 24, something I wrote, some joke, something I said on a tiny podcast in someone's garage, you know, that's what will come up. But at the same time, it's like that person who wants to cancel you for that smart enough people can realize what's going on. I you, believe you think that you think that you hope that you hope that. But yeah, but I guess people right. don't care about context. Dude, think about the the Villanova basketball player who, um, after they won the national championship, he was like the you know the guy came in and he's got some funky name Vander something. He's now in the NBA. He uh, unbelievable basketball player. You know, sorry I can't remember his name. Anyway, this guy, they win the national championship. He's the star. This was a couple years ago. Di Lorenzo, Divincenzo. Yeah, that's Vincenzo. Yeah. Okay. So that guy, right? The day after they won the national championship, people drug, drug, uh, dragged up tweets that he'd written when he was like oh, I think I 14, 13, yeah. 15, where he was like, I think he might have said the N word as, as a quote of a rap song. You know, listen, I've never been stupid enough to do that, fortunately. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not necessarily defending it, but they didn't care that he was 14 when he did it. Mm -hmm. Dude, I was so stupid when I was 14. I would just light shit on fire. <laughs> that was my idea of fun. Yeah. Let's see what, what can burn. Let's go out to a parking lot behind the ice rink and take a can of Axe body spray and create flamethrowers. Thank God... I still have my face, right? Yeah. Against that level of stupidity, right. is it really a surprise that a young kid didn't understand that saying the N-word as a quote in a tweet or thinking it was cool, right. uh, that that happened? Must we say 
that he's the same man now after a year of college that he was when he wrote that tweet when he was 14. Why don't we care about the context? Why don't we care about the, t- the age? And that's what's going to happen. It'll be something I did when I was 23, when I was 24. Uh, you know, I didn't have Twitter when I was 18, thank God. <laughs> but something I did back then that once I achieve a level of success, they will say they're waiting. They may even they have it already. They may just be waiting for the time when I've got my big yeah, announcement. But, but if you live in that sense of paranoia, it's gonna it's gonna kill you. It's it gonna does. Eat you. It eats at me every right. fucking day. But Francis, you're gonna you're gonna drive yourself. You're gonna. N- Drive yourself hitting your head against the wall all day if you if you think this way. Well, I don't know. I don't know how to divorce myself from those feelings. Because then you're also going to be scared to be successful. Maybe you already are. Let's I don't put know. it this way: I am. I'm. I'm moving forward as though it's not going to happen, but I'm constantly preparing myself for it, so that when it does happen, if it does happen, uh, I'm not going to kill myself. Please don't. Do, do you understand what I'm saying, right. though? No, I do. And I know it's very fatalistic. Right. And it sucks because it's it's the equivalent to looking over your shoulder constantly. Right. But I understand what you're saying. It's the internet, dude. I don't know. It's, These are faceless yeah. wraiths who are just spending hour after hour in Reddit threads. But I think it's good that you're talking about it because, you know, um to hear it from someone who you have the platform now that people it's this is a reality of people like you that go through this that have to worry about and I also think it's it's detrimental to 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 your content because then you you start filtering yourself and no one wants to and at the end of the day no one really wants to hear I think every fan, true fan of yours does not want to hear you filter yourself so I think it's good at least that people can now listen to what it's like for someone like you who writes for different you know things to, to hear what it's like. Fine. But at the same time, okay. to credit that fear, to credit those people, the effect that they've had on me, yes, they've made me terrified. Okay. But they've also what have they done? made me uh, less lazy. Mm. Right? So for years... I I was I was somebody who yeah unfortunately I I would make lazy jokes mm-hmm. I would use the word maybe maybe uh, I'd make a lesbian joke like a Subaru you know lesbians drive Subaru whatever I would fall prey to I would do that shit because I didn't know any better I wasn't good enough right and maybe I would make lazy s- jokes based on stereotypes of of Asian Americans or of black people or whatever it was and. By knowing now that those are the things that would crush me, it forced me to get better. Hmm. My humor now doesn't rely on stereotypes. I don't use them. Uh, It doesn't rely on just like broad truisms. I've gotten rid of things from my act that I thought would people would that would get a lazy laugh. Right. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it makes you more precise. And I'm frankly prouder of the work that I'm putting out now because I feel like I'm doing it the right way mm-hmm. or at least in a way that, you know, I'm not worried about. Is there a big difference for you, you see in not in 
not needing to be like political correctness, right? There's a difference, I think, from what you're saying than being politically correct. Would you agree with that? Um, or do you think that now you have to always be politically correct? I think that comedians rail against political correctness as a crutch a lot of the time. And I think that, you know, the great comedians can be politically incorrect Mm -hmm. and get away with it because they're doing it with a mastery that even the people who get mad about political correctness have to say, it made me laugh. I would say like a Dave Chappelle. Bill Burr. Right, Bill Burr. Bill Burr's latest special was all yeah. about women. I know. It was the whole thing was about women. And they were jokes where, like, if you read the transcript of I that know. act, you'd be like, holy shit, someone said that? And yet, you can't stop from acknowledging how funny it is. And brilliant and smart. Exactly. And smart. It's smart. It's not lazy. Dave Chappelle's yeah. transgender jokes are not lazy. Exactly. That whole 100%. thing about riding in the car with, with the, the LGs. Yeah. It's such a it's, brilliant, it's fucking brilliant construct and illustration of, of gender and identity. Right. And it's not lazy. It's not saying like, wow, oh, fuck these people who care about their bathroom choice. Like you can't, right. you know what I mean? It's right. not. It's not lazy. So it's harder to get mad when people uh, display a level of mastery and precision where you're like, well, at the very least, they worked hard to be ignorant. Right, right, right. I don't know. Does that make sense, kind of? So it's, I mean, so I guess that's interesting because I think we, a lot of us, especially I would say a lot of kids my age too are starting to go against this cancel culture. And I think generally speaking, people who are who have something going on in their head are are against canceling people for the sake of canceling people but i do think it's interesting to hear from your perspective now that for someone who's the one creating the content to hear that you are not that that it has forced you to not be lazy and i think mm. that is a good byproduct of this cancel culture in in a sense yes it is um you know one thing, one thing that I've actually been encouraged by is that for a long time, you know, <laughs> straight white male comedians would say that they were the ones who were being targeted, mm-hmm. right, the most. And I don't know, there may have been some truth to that, right? But then the cancel mob started coming after Dave Chappelle. Mm-hmm. Dina Hashem uh, for making jokes about XXX Tentacion's death. Kathy Griffin for holding up a severed head of Donald Trump. Women, Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart. W- people of color, uh, uh, women, people of, of all sorts of different sexualities. It didn't matter anymore mm-hmm. necessarily who said the joke. Right. It was that they said it at all. And once there was that sort of like <laughs> attacking of the full rainbow of right. comedians, it it fortified comedians in a solidarity of like now it's not just you're coming after free speech in general and we need to stick together on this. And um, I think it also made everyone reconsider like who's allowed to make fun of what, Mm. you know what I mean? Like are gay people, the only people who can make jokes about gay people. Do they have the monopoly right. on that yeah. humor? Are Asian Americans the only one who 
who can make fun of that uh, because that's boring. If everyone is simply stuck in their own lane, yeah. they are only allowed to operate along the cards that they've been dealt. Mm-hmm. That's fucking boring. Nobody would want to hear me on stage only making jokes about what it's like to be a white guy. Yeah, yeah. that you, you hear comics do that. Like, I'm so white that I go to the Whole Foods. Fucking boring, yeah. dude. That's boring. Now, that doesn't give me license to all of a sudden write a joke about what it's like to be black or gay or any of that. But, but it's raised the mastery level. I think that's yes. ultimately what it is. I, I feel that I have access to those things. I just know that I need to be way more precise yeah. if I'm going to do it. And it raises the level. I mean, it's, yeah. I guess it's raised the level. And and I think when when like those people hit that like when a Bill Burr makes that women joke in Paper Tiger, you there's an appreciation level. Yeah. That is that then comes from it. Right. I mean, you look at it and you're like, he's fucking brilliant. Yeah. And, and also you're like, well, I get why he can do it and I can't. Hmm. Cause he wrote it in a way that I, I'd never considered. To me, a great example is like, you know, um, his joke about like you can never there's no excuse to hit a woman. Have you heard that? Was it it was it wasn't in that special? A couple of specials ago. Okay. Maybe. He 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 the the thesis for the joke <laughs> is him trying to justify domestic violence. Okay. Right? And the audacity oh my God. to try to unpack that. Yeah. You know, most people would say there's no way. <laughs> yeah. There's no way you can do a that. Straight white male's gonna talk about domestic assault. Yeah. A joke about it. And yet, he does it in a way where by the end, I think even the women in the audience were, would say, like, one, funny, and two, fair. That's why he's a legend. Yeah. The other, the other one would be, the one that I, I think it, it makes more sense is the, um, what is, like, you know, the, the, the first ladies of, the, of America. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And sort of discrediting their work. Right, right, right. <laughs> right, where he's yeah. like, Michelle Obama is writing a I book. Love, What's that, that going to be about? You know, yeah. like, how to know whether a, a dick, dick is presidential. Pre- presidential. Yeah, <laughs> and it's unbelievable. But he softens it right. by throwing the bone to the women mm-hmm. at the end by saying, at some point, we're going to have the first female president. And that will mean there's a first male first lady and if he tries to speak up you're gonna tell him to shut the fuck up and that's fair and it just it it It, frames it all i know to make it fair but most people don't see most people don't see that that the the whole field that way most comics don't they would just end with the first part huh do you talk about this stuff with behind the scenes with comics uh like this particular not really. I honestly, I haven't been hanging out with comedians as much. Maybe that's why I'm so much happier. <laughs> I swear to God, it could be. There's a soul sucking group of people, man. It is uh, a, yeah, it is a race imagine. to the bottom. I can imagine a competition for the saddest story. Everywhere you go, really? every fucking comics table at every comedy club, who's who's had the the worst week? Yeah, you know. Maybe it's that. Either way. I'm excited. I'm excited for you. That was fun, man. It is fun. It's always, it's a. What a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming back. And uh, 
and I'm just I'm excited to see where uh, where it all goes because I'm confident that you're gonna figure your shit out. I hope so, man. I hope so. If there's anyone that can, it's you. <laughs> that's that's the truth. I think. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me on again. What a what an insightful. I always get going on this thing. I always get. I, I love it. Want to? I don't know. We just probably talk for like a long hour forty five, hour fifty. Damn. Wow. Beautiful. I love it. Francis Ellis, everyone. Thanks for having me. Hey, okay. check out Oops the podcast. And uh, what is it? Francis C C Ellis on Instagram. Yeah. Francis C Ellis on Twitter. Take a look at those uh, parking videos. Those are fun. Those are fun. Yeah. Those are on your Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, or your it. website, what Francis Yeah, you find everything there. Yeah. Beautiful. Thanks, cool. brother. Thanks, Felix.